Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's episode is a little different. Uh, You'll see it's entitled Fire and Fury, which is the name of the latest project by the Stuff Circuit team. Fire and Fury is the documentary that's at the centre of this project, uh, and here to talk about that and one of the accompanying stories that we'll hear soon is Stuff Circuit producer Louisa Cleave. Hi, Louisa. Kia ora, Michael. Uh, before we get into this, um, just if listeners aren't aware, quickly explain who Stuff Circuit are. Sure, yeah. Stuff Circuit, um, we're an investigations team that uh, sits within the Stuff Fano, and we are primarily tasked with long-form uh, documentary video content. Um, we probably produce a couple of these a year. We tend to get into subjects that are a bit more complex and then we aim to present those in a really visually compelling way. We're just a small team. There's only four of us. There's um, our editor-director, Toby Longbottom, cameraman, illustrator, Phil Johnson, Myself as the producer and Paula Penfold as the uh, presenter-reporter. And so Fire and Fury is your latest project. What's it about? Fire and Fury looks at some of the key people behind the spread of misinformation and disinformation. And we'll link to Fire and Fury in our show notes. That's the documentary. We're going to hear one of the accompanying stories soon. But people will be familiar with what you just described. I mean, everybody will have in some form been aware of, even if it's just through mainstream media coverage since COVID-19 has joined us in the world, this misinformation, disinformation has just grown and grown and grown and become part of everyone's lives to some extent, of course, culminating in the Wellington protests. How did you, how do you begin to tackle a story this big? I mean, you mentioned before you're focused on several key characters in the documentary, but how do you even hone it down that much and try and tell a coherent story in, in such a huge, you know, nebulous, overwhelming mess of an issue. Yeah, of course. It's. I mean, it's. It's about making it as understandable and clear to the audience as we can. And and there was just a phenomenal amount of information to wade through. Um, thankfully, time is our friend in investigative journalism, and so we um, we're privileged to have the time to to wade through that information, um, identify sort of the key people we should be looking at. Um, a couple of those turned out um, to not be able to be uh, followed through in the end because of um, criminal charges laid against them. We we looked at it and we thought our medium of video is a great medium to bring this you know, to because we could show people how these key people communicate the messages in their own words. So Foreign Fury covers the Wellington protests, of course, which we'll get to soon. But it also, as you just touched on, addresses uh, the wider issue of disinformation in our society, going back to uh, the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and even earlier than that. What did you find out about those periods that can give us some context for, for what's happened in the last year or so? Yeah, our interest in this all really did begin right back at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I joined the team 
at the first lockdown in April 2020 and that that time we were quite interested in the 5G conspiracies going around and, and links to COVID. We started to get some insight, I suppose, into the conspiracy theories, chatting to experts like MRX Dentith. He um, sort of was great at sort of casting some light on, on how this was, why this was happening. I guess people were looking for an explanation for the pandemic and he talked with me about the various ways people deal with that. And it's quite interesting now looking back on that conversation um, two years on because he, two and a half years on, because, you know, he talks, he talked then about people blaming the system, blaming the government, people wanting to believe there was a deliberate act to bring about control around the world. So he sort of saw the, the sort of where this trajectory, where it was going, um, which was really fascinating. At that time, one of the people capitalising on on all the information being spread around uh, was Billy Takahika. Um, he was pumping out vast amounts of misinformation, gaining a huge following and, and uh, having political aspirations before the last election. So uh, we actually ended up doing a documentary on him called False Prophet. And whilst doing that we would meet some of the key figures who would turn up in fire and fury. 5G, I'd forgotten about 5G. Seems almost quaint now in the scheme of things. Even Billy Takahika's sort of faded over the last year or so with all of everything that's happened since. Um, One of the things that struck me in the documentary, and we'll hear this in the story you're about to read, is the extent to which New Zealanders consume disinformation, more so than than people in other countries, Mm. which kind of took me by surprise. Why do you think that is? Are we more susceptible to this sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, 90% of New Zealanders use social media, and we're, we're the eighth highest in the world for, for that. So there's this very, you know, solid foundation there. Uh, you've got a, a willing and available audience for, for conspiracy to target. In talking to, to people who study this area, you know, false information spreads faster and more widely than facts. Negative information spreads better than positive information. So when you start to understand, you know, how things spread around on social media, you start to get an idea of how these groups managed to build a significant audience. And a lot of them did that on places like Facebook uh, in the early stages before I think we cottoned on to, you know, how, what was really happening and before the platforms caught up with them and, and the misinformation they were spreading and banned them. Voices for Freedom, for instance, were taken down five times off Facebook. Uh, and only recently, Chantal Baker has been taken off Facebook. She was there during the Wellington occupation uh, and her lives on that final day uh, generated about a million views. So. She um, kept a presence on Facebook for quite a long time. People who've studied her said, you know, she had a very good knack for knowing what the ceiling was and how to keep below that um, in order not to be banned. At the Wellington protests, they make an appearance about three quarters of the way through Fire and Fury. Mm. You were there. How was it? While the documentary does look at the protest and we do have a very um, powerful section, as you say, three quarters of the way through, the inciters, the people spreading the disinformation, they're the focus. It's not about COVID. It's not about vaccines. It's not about the protest itself even. It's about 
the people deliberately spreading this misinformation, disinformation. And that was what was driving people to be there. We turned up on the final day, which we didn't actually realise was going to be the final day. And we, we went into it knowing that journalists had been getting a hard time. But I don't think we kind of expected how confronting it would be. Um, our first wander in, I suppose, we were confronted by a group of very angry people. We tried to have a conversation about why we were there, what we were doing. Um, they just didn't want to know. And then they marched us out, um, very fo- closely following us, very intimidating. Um, and then as the day wore on um, and the violence erupted and got worse and worse, you could see that there was any any media in the in the in this in their sites was going to be hassled, were blamed for what was happening. And it felt very dangerous at times as well. Um, you know, we've all reported from places around the world where our safety could be at risk and we trained or given training to mitigate the risk, but um, yeah, we never thought we'd be calling on it for a job at home. Before we hear the story, uh, we should address that parts of this have already moved on, even since you're reporting a few weeks ago, particularly around these peddlers of disinformation who are looking to embed themselves in you know, mainstream society in other ways, not just on their own platforms online, say. And we've seen that mostly through uh, coverage of local body elections and candidacies there. And also, I'm in Christchurch, um, Kelvin Arp and Hannah Spear, two of the characters in your stories, were recently arrested and have appeared in court over their conduct and, and what they've published mm. online. Um, talk to us a, a little bit about that, and then we can talk about stuff's um, subsequent reporting on this. Yeah, the day after the documentary launch, we wrote a story about how Voices for Freedom was encouraging members to stand in the local body elections, uh, but telling them not to declare their affiliation to VFF, and that was in emails that they sent their own communications to members um, and clearly stating that that's the approach that should be taken. The arrests of uh, Calvin Alp and Hannah Sparrow happened, I think, 10 days after Fire and Fury was released. Some people within the groups have drawn a direct link, which of course is is wrong, um, and that investigation by the police had been underway for quite a while, a number of months. but that's an interesting outcome because, you know, it shows that there are consequences when some of what you say does cross that line. So Voices for Freedom, you know, made it very clear they, they after the protests, they would, you know, wanted to move on with their uh, agenda, their their program. Um, they're very organised in that way. You can, you know, if, when you follow their communications, um, they're very slick and very organised. So, you know, they they weren't going to just shut up shop and go home. They looked for uh, new issues to pick up on. And um, one of those, they talked about uh, making the country ungovernable, which kind of was one of the things that really caught us right at the beginning. Um, So we started to, you started to see that play out, that playbook. Uh, with these local body elections, I believe. Yeah, we've had plenty just in Canterbury, I know, and around the country of these candidates who present themselves as sort of even-minded, you know, centrist, even relatively benign figures, uh, as you say, hiding links to things like Voices for Freedom or Counterspin or any of that sort of idea. Um, 
it's called agenda surfing. You mentioned it in, in Fire and Fury, that idea that when one thing ends, you simply find another issue, like you say, three waters, co-governance, something like that, to latch on to and ferment the same sort of discontent and keep a movement going. Where do you think it goes from here? Is this something we live with now in New Zealand, this higher baseline of disinformation, misinformation? Can we undo it? So, so the purpose the purpose of Fire and Fury is, is to illustrate you know, where the disinformation comes from, how it's being spread. But obviously there's a whole other story to tell about how we move on from this and we have to find a way to do that. It does exist. It's happening. We can't accept it on the scale that it's grown to, I think. So we've seen families you know, ripped apart. And um, one of the things we wanted to try to do to help help people through that was we produced a, a cheat sheet which talks about what you should do and shouldn't do when talking to someone who's gone down the rabbit hole. The, the experts we spoke to in the documentary talk about inoculation being the best approach. So... In many ways, we hope that you know people, the, the people watching the documentary, they will see the the agendas, they will see the playbook tactics, um, strategies, and they'll be able to identify these, and that will provide some sort of inoculation to that, to falling into that trap. And what you've done, Louisa, with that initial story has been followed up around the country. Stuff reporters in. Most newsrooms, I think, have followed up on this and looked closely at candidacies, people standing for local government. Um, tell us a bit about that, about what's come from that initial reporting of yours. Yeah, it's been absolutely heartening to see the reporting on this and, and stuff is in such a perfect position to do that with so many boots on the ground around the country. And we're seeing... People, you know, reporters now wading through candidate lists and, and investigating affiliations and beliefs. Um, they're not all voices for freedom affiliations. There's some, you know, just straight out conspiracy theorists in there. And the point of it is to help people understand what some of those agendas are and encourage people to do your civic duty um, in terms of finding out who you're voting for, ask questions about your candidates. Because while we we have a list now of these these stories, um, it's not definitive. Many people have sort of hidden their beliefs and agendas, um, scrubbed off their social media, and um, it's it's sort of an ongoing um, effort from all of us to to keep asking those questions, keep ensuring we um, we know who people who people are, what they stand for. Lastly, the story we're about to hear, one of the accompanying to the Fire and Fury documentary. It's called Democracy on Edge. So uh, just quickly set that up for us. So we wanted to give some context um, to the documentary and explain how we became interested in it in the first place. Why this infodemic is worrying and threatening to our democracy um, and to explain the fact that the disinformation and that violent rhetoric we showed the viewers in the documentary wasn't just theoretical and doesn't only exist online it's also having real-world impacts. So that's what Democracy on Edge is um, is about. Thanks, Louisa. Uh, that's a fantastic project. Congratulations. Fire and Fury is just compelling viewing. We'll link to it in our show notes for this episode and this story, which is Louisa now reading the Stuff Circuit story, Democracy on Edge. Operation Reclaim, it was titled. A strategic plan, apparently. 
an appeal for, quote, real and tangible action taken by the people in numbers. A call for public trials of politicians, media, judges, business leaders for crimes against humanity. A combative opposing force could be expected, it read, and that threat should be met by assembling, quote, former trained but trusted ex-military, police and even hunters. The action had one agenda, to save the people, quote, from this tyranny. The plan was released in February during the Wellington occupation by one of the key figures behind the protest, Calvin Alp, a disaffected former soldier with a history of failed attempts at politics, who last year launched Counterspin Media, a far-right online TV channel. Alp is a focus of the Stuff Circuit documentary, Fire and Fury. Our investigation centres not on the Wellington protest itself, but those who drove it. Who are they? What did they believe? And crucially, what do they want to happen next? From the outside looking in, especially on that final violent and terrifying day, it may have appeared the occupation had achieved nothing but destruction and perhaps the slight decaying of societal norms. But for those pushing the false information that motivated people to join in and stay on, it was an opportunity to build the movement beyond the fringe, a recruitment drive. For Fire and Fury, we tallied the numbers to gauge how big an audience Alp and others like him have. While we wouldn't wish to overstate their influence, the figures don't lie. Combined, they are reaching hundreds of thousands of New Zealanders through a mix of mainstream social media, unregulated chat rooms, and video hosting sites that are hotbeds of hate, where algorithms ply yet more hate and there's no consequence for publishing blatantly fake news. The Fire and Fury documentary shows you, unfiltered, what the players preach to their followers, how they're all interconnected, and what motivates them to spread disinformation on issues as diverse as the invasion of Ukraine, the US overturning of abortion rights, and of course COVID. Watching what they say and the often venomous way they say it led us to another threat which we'll examine here, the fundamental risk they pose to democracy. Because consistent across their messaging is a plan to deconstruct our political structure from the bottom up to achieve an quote, ungovernable country. Within months of the protest, they were beginning to achieve that aim. Counterspin Media was rallying supporters to rise up and create a parallel society. Quote, your own government, your own structure, your own currency. Then took the message on a road trip, travelling Aotearoa between April and June 2022 with the objective of keeping up the momentum started at the Wellington occupation. The frustration of failing to get any wins out of the protest had steered them in another direction. Local government and discontent over the Three Waters reform of water service infrastructure and management. Alpina's partner, fellow Counterspin presenter Hannah Sperra, held meetings from the far north to Bluff, introducing their communities to speakers on conspiracies such as the COVID pandemic being a hoax to bring about a secret United Nations agenda for a single world government. It's concerning then for democracy that elected officials councillors in three regions took part in the proceedings, not as interested observers, but in the lineup of apparently like-minded speakers. Gisborne councillor and then member of Tairawhiti District Health, Meredith Akuhata-Brown, told the meeting that COVID vaccine was an experimental drug, causing injury and death. It has, but not at anywhere near the exaggerated rates alleged. There was low attendance, but the meeting was recorded and put online. New Plymouth District Councillor Annika Carlson told a healthy-sized crowd that after the Wellington protest ended the way it did, it made her heart so warm and so happy 
to see people turning up for the Counterspin event, thanking them for coming to Taranaki. Waikato Regional Councillor Cathy White addressed a crowd in Taupo, telling them media reporting on Thames Coromandel Mayor Sandra Gowdy's refusal to be vaccinated was an orchestrated attempt to, quote, muzzle people. White also spoke about an unidentified friend she said had died after receiving her second vaccination, standard fear at the meetings where the counterspin hosts ask people to raise their hands if they know of someone with a vaccine injury. Those apocryphal anecdotes, stories of unknown and doubtful origins, are a long-held tool of the anti-vaccination movement. Vaccine injuries is a popular topic too for Voices for Freedom, another focus of fire and fury. Led by, quote, three passionate Kiwi mums, Voices for Freedom says it stands for the nebulous but righteous-sounding, quote, medical freedom. In reality, its aims are far wider and mirror those of Counterspin. In a March email to members, the leaders wrote they are, quote, setting up systems of resilience so that we will never again be subject to the whim of tyrannical leaders. They needed a rallying cry because they too were feeling the dying momentum. After the protest finished, everybody was flat, sad, broken, said regular Voices for Freedom contributor Jill Booth at a public meeting in June. They'd lost their direction, she said, and urged attendees to focus on a new issue, Three Waters. So the thing with Three Waters is that we can bring the direction back, Booth said. Without mandates, without the vaccine, it's a whole different topic, It doesn't matter what you are or who you are, it's going to affect you and this can give us one single focus. Booth laid out a playbook for sabotaging the democratic process. When you go into these groups, just tip them up, she said. Don't play ball, become ungovernable. Booth was supported by Southland farmer James Matheson, who gained a following through the Wellington occupation as Farmer James. Matheson described how he and 70 others turned up at a meeting to discuss alternative industries for Southland when the T.Y. Point aluminium smelter closed. I tore shreds off these people for like an hour, he said. Then I had to go to rugby practice. His advice was, quote, be an absolute hindrance. The same tactics were deployed in June when the Clutha District Council held a public meeting fronted by figures leading the Three Waters reforms. Clutha Mayor Brian Cadogan asked for a respectful discussion and offered reassurance that there would be no change to water ownership, yet it took only 30 minutes for everything to go downhill. Why is half the board Māori then? What are you talking about, unleashed one person, not even attempting to disguise their racism? As the meeting progressed and the crowd became more confrontational, Farmer James Matheson stoked the sentiment, standing up to tell Cadogan, you're pretty good at blowing your own trumpet, before asking again about ownership, adding, with no apparent context, how long might it take if we've got six iwi representatives, how long would it take them to get the concrete poured even? It achieved the desired effect on the room, and someone else rose to their feet to make an unsubstantiated claim about backroom dealings with Naitahu. Officials reiterated water assets will remain in public ownership, with new entities collectively owned by councils. But those opposed had made up their minds. Matheson live-streamed the two-hour meeting on Facebook, attracting 5,000 views. Which sounds like a good thing. Engagement in local issues is democracy in action, isn't it? 
that's not what this is, says an exasperated mayor. It's a deliberate attempt to undermine democratic process. Brian Cadogan says the meeting had been called because of concern about the speed with which misinformation about the reforms was spreading, making it impossible to share facts. It is a shame, Cadogan says, because democracy and the very principles that define our freedoms and privileges are being radically affected. The main problem for society is the growing numbers of traditionally sound-thinking people that are influenced, not knowing the alternative motivation, he says. Cadogan argues the strategies to disrupt are putting society's stability at risk, along with the future of democracy. Many would say that is an alarmist overreaction, he says, but when you have a unique insight into the dynamics at play, it is possibly an understatement, because much of the damage is already done and society has not yet recognised it. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before, who delivered the news, just like, you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The Human Race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it. And so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevate. It's tempting to dismiss the ungovernability movement as fringe, but that would be a mistake. You only need to watch the hearings of the US Congressional Committee investigating the Capitol riots of January 21 to see the real-life consequences of anti-democratic sentiment gaining traction. The fact that far-right groups involved in storming the Capitol have been classified as terrorist organisations in New Zealand shows how seriously the issue has been taken. But for those at the coalface of democracy, it's not enough. We saw it in America and never thought we could be that silly, says Brian Cadogan. But it only took a few months and we had our own civil unrest in Wellington. Society is lagging behind in awareness and mechanisms to deal with this new dynamic. Multiple factors lead to that unrest. Disconnection, long poverty, growing distrust in institutions. But there's another major hook that can't be ignored. Conspiracy. For Fire and Fury we interviewed Josie, who only wants their first name used given the horrific transphobia that pervades all these groups. In 2009, Josie started looking for answers to why the world was, quote, dog shit, and soon became a full-blown conspiracist. Among the theories that gripped Josie for 10 years was that a group of secret elite leaders was working to establish a new world order. Everything, I thought, got filtered through a constellation of meaning that conspiracy theories would give you, Josie says. I had all the answers given to me by these elusive freedom fighters. Updated versions of the same theories Josie fell for back then are still trotted out by all the groups we studied. 
In 2021, Voices for Freedom co-leader Claire Deeks spoke alongside big-name anti-vaccine influencers at an online international summit promoting the Great Reset Conspiracy Theory. That global elites are using the pandemic to establish a totalitarian world government. References to the Great Reset soon appeared in Voices for Freedom's own marketing material. Calvin Alp, whose counterspin media purports to be a facts and evidence-based platform, is also a believer of the Great Reset, and gives frequent monologues about, quote, the transhumanist agenda. Farmer James cultivates a brand of the beer-drinking southern man working the land and defending family, and is called COVID a scamdemic. In March, he filmed a group of men gathered in his shed, talking about the start of a male revolution, and in June started his own national tour calling on men to stand tall. It's all delivered with assuredness and contempt for the, quote, sheeple who haven't caught up, which is a common trait amongst conspiracy theory devotees. The belief, the knowledge they possess, makes them smarter than everyone else. The problem is, much of what they've embraced is driven by highly adept, far-right manipulators whose very purpose, say experts, is to destabilise social democracies. The New Zealand spreaders are simply vectors, but they have large, loyal audiences which might help explain why we seem to have a particular vulnerability. In the months leading up to the Wellington protest, New Zealanders were embracing Russian disinformation and propaganda at a rate 30% greater than Australians or Americans. How to fix that? At least some of the responsibility falls on social media companies. The next phase of the Christchurch call agreement will focus on how algorithms contribute to radicalisation and spreading misinformation by feeding people more of what they are already watching, only worse. How the big tech companies will contribute to that work is unclear, although Stuff Circuit has learned Facebook activated a special operations team to monitor content during the Wellington occupation with the aim of removing misinformation and posts inciting violence in real time. But of course, only the mainstream social media companies are, belatedly, trying, and not always hard enough. The unregulated chat rooms where this content rages are seemingly untouchable and indifferent. Josie eventually managed to crawl out of the rabbit hole. With none of the conspiracy theories coming true, they felt the need to become more media literate, learning, quote, how to research and engage with information in a way that you can pull out the contradictions and inconsistencies. So Josie watched events unfolding in the capital at the beginning of this year through a different lens to most of us, familiar with the pull and consequently worried about a descent into violence by a mob or an individual radicalised through the ongoing demonisation of, quote, the elite. We witnessed firsthand that there's reason to be worried. After reading Operation Reclaim, Calvin Alp's strategic plan, we wanted to see what impact it might have on the Wellington protest. Stuff Circuit was in the thick of it when the protest turned into a riot and Fire and Fury shows footage we filmed but have not previously released. The scenes are apocalyptic and as journalists we've never anywhere in the world experienced such visceral hatred towards us. It was dangerous and, at times, it was scary. The fermented distrust of the media is in itself a sign that democracy here is on edge. The disruptors know destabilising one of its pillars weakens the whole thing. We need to be paying attention, or, as the conspiracy theorists themselves would say, we need to wake up.
That was Democracy on Edge on the long read from Stuff, written and read by Louisa Cleave and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. If you're listening via the Stuff website, you can hear this story and many more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual podcast apps. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.